Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would visit us. Lord, I am not adequate for what needs to happen here, but your word is. Your word, which called the world into being, can so work through these hearts and minds as we gather together and humbly submit ourselves to what you have for us. Lord, you can make it so that your will will be done. You can make it so that we will not be like that wicked and worthless servant who took his solitary talent and went and hid it in the ground. Lord, we want you to work in our hearts so that we take your five talents or three talents or whatever you've given us and we go and invest and in entrepreneurial ways seek to cause wisdom for the poor and try to address the way that they're they're separated from you and they don't know how to steward what they have and they don't even know who they are as human beings and so it's only natural that their communities are broken and Lord you can cause the gospel to work through us and you can transform these things and I humbly beseech you to do it here Father, we ask that you would do more than we can ask or think. We pray that you would do more than we can imagine. We pray that you would change hearts and and change this place. And we pray that you would make us your hands and feet. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. We come in our study of the Psalms to Psalm 41, and I would invite you to turn there. This is a a challenging psalm because of what the text says, which is always the way it is, isn't it? Look at the first words of this psalm. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. There's a lot here. There's a lot here that's sort of just under the surface and, and... What I'm alluding to is the way that the first words of Psalm 41, the first word of Psalm 41, is exactly the same as the first word of Psalm 1. So Psalm 1, blessed is the man. It's what what Matt read earlier. And in Psalm 1, the blessed man is a man who studies the Bible. Well, you might notice that at the end of Psalm 41, look at what you've got between Psalms 41 and 42. You've got this book 2. So Psalms 1 through 41 are a unit, and we'll see a lot of indicators that this is sort of a turning point in the Psalter. So you start the Psalter with this this statement in Hebrew, Ashrei Ha'ish. And now we've got Ashrei, but we've got a different description. Because in Psalm 41, we're not talking about somebody who's hovering over the Bible, sitting alone, meditating on the Word. We're talking about somebody who's going into action for poor people. So in Psalm 41, 
it's as though it's time for us to put our money where our mouths are. In Psalm 41, if we're, we're all on board with being Psalm 1. We all want to meditate on the text, and I talk about that all the time. Now here in Psalm 41, blessed is the one, the ESV renders this, who considers the poor. But there's even more. This is, this is such a great statement, and, and the translations, you know, they're doing the best they can. But there's just only so much that you can bring up across here. You, you, could, you could literally render this statement, blessed is the one who causes wisdom for the poor. This, this word considers that they've, they've given us, behind that word is a word that has to do with, you know, it's, it's a word used in the statement in Joshua 1 when uh, Joshua is told not to let the book of the law depart from his mouth but to meditate on it day and night so that he will be prosperous and successful. One of those words for prosperous is actually used in Psalm 1. Whatever this man that studies the Bible does, he'll, he'll prosper. That other word there, successful, that's actually also the word that's used in Psalm 2 when Psalm 2 says, therefore, O kings, be wise. Or, or you, you, might be, you might translate that something like uh, cause prosperity, uh, some, something along these lines. This word has to do with being successful. It has to do with, with being wise because it has to do with skillful living in accordance with with the Bible. And what this statement is saying, blessed is the one who considers the poor, this statement is saying, I think it could be, it could be one of several things. Let's, let's think about this, this phrase or this, this statement, blessed is the one who causes wisdom for the poor. I think you could take that to mean, blessed is the one who causes the poor to be wise. You could also take that to mean something like, Blessed is the one who causes other people to conduct themselves wisely toward the poor. This is a blessing that we need. This is a blessing that we want. Last summer, we, we read a book called When Helping Hurts. It's, a, it's an excellent book. If you haven't read it, I would commend it to you. The authors talk about different kinds of poverty. And they talk about how everybody is suffering. Everybody this side of the Garden of Eden is suffering from a poverty of spiritual intimacy. This is our biggest problem. This is everybody's biggest problem. We have the solution to that, don't we? It's the gospel that solves people's poverty when it comes to spiritual intimacy. This message that, that we, we cherish is what brings people to God, reconciles people to God. And I'm, I'm praying that the Lord would so work in our hearts and minds that in thousands of ways that I can't even begin to describe, everybody here would cause wisdom for the poor in the spiritual, the, the poverty of spiritual intimacy that surrounds all of us all the time. There's another kind of poverty that they discuss. They discuss a poverty of being. And this is... This, is, this has to do with your, your own understanding of yourself, your own failure to, to realize what it is to be made in the image of li- and likeness of God, to be someone that God would, would send his own son in the project of redemption to reclaim. The, again, this is a, our, our friends and neighbors, they, they think they've got problems of self-esteem, but this is their real, real problem. They have a poverty of being. They don't know who they are. They don't know why they're here. 
And we can address this poverty too. And those kinds of poverty, they also result in poverty of relationships or poverty of community where, where because people are separated from God, because they don't know who they are, they don't know how to treat each other. And as a result, you've just got brokenness, shattered relationships all through society. And God's way of addressing that is sending his son Jesus to call out a group of people who then take the love of God to the world. And then there's a poverty of stewardship. This is what we tend to think of when we think of of poverty. Poverty of stewardship, poverty of uh, a lack of resources. As I was thinking about this, this statement in Psalm 41, verse 1, blessed is the one who causes wisdom for the poor. I thought about a, an, an example, a book that is referred to in When Helping Hurts. It's a book called To Live in Peace, and it's written by this guy named Mark Gornick, G-O-R-N-I-K. You might, you might check it out. It tells the story about how in 1989, uh, this guy Mark Gornick, Gornick and this other guy named Alan Tibbles, who was a paraplegic. This guy's in a wheelchair. They moved into this neighborhood in Baltimore called Sandtown. This was one of the worst neighborhoods in the country. In fact, this is the neighborhood where all the riots happened just recently there in Baltimore. Crime, murders, uh, broken homes, single-parent homes. You, you, you know, you imagine the problems. They've got it. Drugs. They, they, they isolated a 15-block area in which there were 350 abandoned homes, empty houses, and they went there, and they just began to love the people. They, they insist in this book that they write, To Live in Peace, that they didn't go in with an agenda. They didn't go in, and, and this is one of the things that when Helping Hurts talks about, you don't go in, or you know they're advocating, you don't go in from the perspective of, we've got the answers, and we're ready to fix you now. They went in, and they loved the people, and they established credibility, and, and what they did was they won uh, the hearts of those around them to, to participating in an attempt to, to seek a better way of life. And they, and they planted a church there. And when that church, on the 10-year anniversary of that church, um, they, they didn't only have a church that was multi-ethnic and uh, so forth and, and, and composed of the people of the neighborhood. They had also... They had the beginnings of a school. They, they had brought in a health center. They had job assistance. They had arts programs. And Habitat for Humanity had come in. And, and they, they were in the process of revolutionizing that neighborhood. It's a great story. It's an inspiring story. And I, I don't know. I don't know what the Lord is going to do in this place. But I'm praying that the Lord would give us this blessing that we would be people who have the blessing because we cause wisdom for the poor. This, this I think, ultimately, um, it's, it's founded in David's own experience as king of Israel and in the way that he lived out what it looked like to be king in Israel and in the way that his own expectation generated from his own way of life and from the promises that God had made, the, 
the way that that led him to expect the one promise to come from his line, the future king, the, what, what, what he expected his reign would be like. Um, and and, and that, that kind of thing is supported by statements like, like Proverbs uh, 21, 13, where Solomon says that the one who closes his ears to the cry of the poor will himself cry and not be heard. Uh, Proverbs 19.17 says, same same word for poor in these Proverbs that we've got right here in Psalm 41. Proverbs 19.17 says that the one who is generous to the poor, I don't understand how this works, but this is what the Bible says, so I believe it. The one who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. That's what I said. The one who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Does the Lord need anything? No, he doesn't need anything. Does the Lord uh, somehow gather up resources from? No, I don't think so. But the Bible says that the one who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. What it's getting at is the fact that, that it is out of regard for the maker and the redeemer that these people are being considerate and, and thinking of ways to cause wisdom for the poor. Blessed is the one who considers the poor, or blessed is the one who causes wisdom for the poor. Because of this regard for the Lord that is prompting this, um, the Lord is not going to be like that proverb. He will himself cry and not be heard. Instead, look at what the verse goes on to say in verse 1. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. So people who, who live this way, people who seek this blessing of helping others, will, will themselves, the Bible says, be helped. But, but in particular, I think we're talking about one person. I, I would submit to you that um, this should not be made into the plural, like the NIV, the new NIV, the NIV 2011 has it. Uh, I think this should be individual because I think that David here is contemplating the same blessed man that he was talking about in Psalms 1 and 2, the future king from his line. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us because we're being transformed into somebody's image, aren't we? Hopefully. We're, we're following in somebody's footsteps, aren't we? And so, blessed is the one who causes wisdom for the... That's what Jesus is going to do. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. So David is describing, I would, I would suggest, the future king from his line, and he's talking about how the future king from the line of David is not going to be somebody who helps those who can bribe him. He's not going to be somebody who helps those, only those who can offer influential protection to him or who can pay back the monetary aid that he gives. This is a king who's going to help the poor because he has regard for the Lord. David is speaking of a king who is honoring the Lord through his wise dealing with the poor, and in response to that, the Lord protects him, delivers him, raises him up to life, restores him to full health. 
So I think, I think what's going on here is that David has heard promises, promises like the ones that Matt read there in, in Psalm 2 that are based on 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then David looks at his own life and he looks at the teaching of the Bible and all these things start working together in his thinking. And, and he starts expecting a wise king, because that's what God promised him, who's going to live out the wise life that's detailed in, in the Torah and then put in pithy summary statements in Proverbs. And then he looks at his own life and the way that he himself has prospered, and he says, okay, there are ways in which this king is going to correspond to the way that I've tried to live. And I think that's why we have in verses 1 through 3 this description of the blessing of the Lord. And then in verse 4, David switches from the third person, talking about the one and him and he and that kind of thing, to me, I. So David is now going to talk about his own life because his own life, I think, is a kind of uh, anticipatory pattern, or we might say his life is a type of the one who is to come. And now he's going to change from describing the blessing of the Lord in verses 1 through 3 to describing the curses of the enemies in verses 4 through 10. I'm sorry, 4 through 9. So verse 4, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. Now, I think there's a connection between verse 4 and verse 3. Verse 3, in his illness, you restore him to full health. And then David expects the future king to have afflictions and things he's going to have to be restored from because he himself has needed healing. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Um, David is a sinner, and David confesses his sin. This is the kind of sinner you want to be. Everybody's a sinner, but you want to be the kind of sinner who, who, who recognizes God is just, and God is not going to let me get away with my sin. And the only way for me to deal with my sin is to confess it to God. You, you cannot run from the Lord. You will never escape him. There is nowhere to go. So we want to be the kind of people who, when we sin, we cry out to the Lord for forgiveness and healing. So I think David is connecting his weakened position to his own personal sin. And that, that's, that's a theme that you see all across the Bible. All across the Bible, it, nothing can stop the Lord. And nothing can stop the people of God. But their own sin can. And every time they start to sin, the Lord brings judgment against them. Or every, and judges say, every time they sin, what does the Lord do? He strengthens their enemies against them. So, so the only thing really that can stop the gospel is the sin of God's people. And, and the only way to deal with that sin is to confess it and, and cry out to the Lord. And this is exactly what David is, is doing here. Now, his weakened position, his own physically weakened position, is also manifested in his enemies. And, and the enemies, these are the guys that David described back in Psalm 2. Matt read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And these people, they set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. In verse 5 here, David says, my enemies say of me in malice. When will he die and his name perish? 
Do you remember the promise in 2 Samuel 7? The Lord said to David, I will make your name great. The enemies don't want that. They want David's name to perish. So these enemies, they have set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. And and so they're saying, when will he die and his name perish? And then apparently the scene in verse 6 is, perhaps, David is on this sickbed, right? He's crying out in verse 4, heal me. He's speaking of a sickbed in verse 3. So maybe he's, he's on a sickbed and, and somebody comes to visit. But he knows he can't trust these guys. So look at verse 6. When one comes to see me, he utters empty words. So these people, they come to see David in his afflicted and weakened state. And they profess to be concerned about him. But he knows what their real intents are. Look at what he says, while his heart gathers iniquity. These are people that they're coming to see David and all they're doing is collecting information that can be used against him. They're, they're looking for, for gaffes. They're looking for, for ways that they can slander him when they go out in public. And that's exactly what they go on to do. Look at verse 6. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. That guy was so weak. That guy was so, there's no way he's going to be raised up to defeat us. He has no hope of being restored. And then verse 7, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Uh, this, is, this is terminology that has been used repeatedly through the Psalter to characterize the enemies of the, of the king and the way that they are uh, trying to, to stir up rebellion and to foment dissatisfaction seeking to establish their own cause and their own kingdom in opposition to the Lord. And then David says in verse 8, they say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. Now, I think this is a place where um, the, uh, the translators, they're trying to help us. Uh, but... but in, 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 in their decisions, um, what they seem to have done is they seem to have replaced an ancient way of, of viewing the world with a, a more modern way of viewing the world. And, and what I mean is, the, is that um, literally what, what the text says here is a word of Belial is poured out on him. Now, the, so the translators have helped us because we don't know what a word of Belial is. But likely, Belial... I think, is a demon. And I think this reflects a view of the world where when people are afflicted, whether they're sick or they're suffering in some way or politically their cause is being uh, defeated, uh, the demons are at work against them. And there are other parts of the world in which people still think this way. P- people people uh, are, are much more permeable in their understanding of of the interactions between heavenly powers and spiritual forces and what's happening before us. And, and so David's enemies, they see him um, not prospering, and their reaction is the evil spirits are at work against him, and a word of Belial has been poured out upon him. Um, the, the translators, they, they do different things with this. The, the 2011 NIV has, a vile disease has afflicted him. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible has lethal poison, poison has been poured into him. 
And then the, the ESV has a deadly thing is poured out on him. But, but I, I, you know, I think this uh, colorful image of a word of Belial is at work against him is, is perhaps helpful for our understanding of, of the way that people thought about this, this kind of thing in the ancient world. So they think, they think the evil forces are at work against David, and they say there in verse 8, he will not rise again from where he lies. They think he's down for the count. They think it's over for David. Now, in this, in this world, um, the way that you established loyalty and fealty and fidelity was you, you practiced hospitality and you forged these relationships. And, and, and in, in David's context, when you showed hospitality to someone, you welcomed him into your dining hall and you sat him down to eat your bread at your board, this would create certain obligations in the ancient world. It would create a situation where now this man was, was to be faithful to you. He was to, to honor you in the way that you had honored him. There's a kind of reciprocity thing at work. They, they, they owed loyalty to the chief who fed his kinsmen, his retainers, and his fighters. And in verse 9, David describes the way that even somebody who's obligated to him in those kinds of terms has been treacherous to him. He says here in verse 9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, even he has lifted his heel against me. This is a vivid way to describe an enemy lifting his heel to stomp on the head of the one that he wants to defeat. And, and I think that that image comes right out of Genesis 3.15, which seems to presuppose a scene where the seed of the serpent is going to have his head bruised as the seed of the woman has his heel bruised. And if we fill in the gap of how these things happen, it might happen by the, the seed of the woman stomping on the head of the seed of the serpent, bruising his heel in the process of gaining the victory. And David is saying, they're turning this around. I'm the seed of the woman, and they're trying to raise their heel against me. Even the one who's supposed to be loyal to me is doing this. So we have, we have the, uh, the blessing of the Lord in verses 1 through 3, and then we have the curse of the wicked in verses 4 through 9. And David, throughout the Psalms, always responds the same way. When he's in difficulty, he always cries out to the Lord. And that's what he does here. Look at what he says there in verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. And the, the specific way, the specific form that God that David wants God's grace to take here is, look at verse 10, raise me up that I may repay them. And, and this, this repayment is altogether just and right. What David wants to do is establish righteousness. What you've got here in this, this word, that I may repay them, you've got a verbal form of the noun shalom. You know, we, we, we know this word shalom means peace and wholeness. What David is saying is, let me reestablish shalom against these enemies by doing justice upon them. So David is crying out to the Lord for grace to be raised up to defeat the wicked and thereby establish shalom. Notice how verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me, is the very same as verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. 
So, so the prayer is, is the same in both cases. And if the Lord will answer that prayer, if the Lord will raise David up to repay the enemies, look at what he says in verse 11, by this, if you'll restore me to health, if you'll raise me up, if you'll enable me to establish shalom against these people, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. So David is, is calling on the Lord to make it so that the enemy does not celebrate. And there, there, are, there are the same kinds of enemies at work today. And I think that you can just appropriate this prayer and run with it because there are people who would love to exult over how foolish the Christians are and how worthless the Christians are and how hypocritical the Christians are. And they want to do that because they don't want God's authority in their lives. And they're making this argument, this self-justifying argument that reinforces itself when they see Christians fail. And so we should pray that the Lord would, would raise us up and cause us to prosper so that the wicked will be defeated, so that the name of the Lord will be magnified. And then verse 12, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. This is the kind of integrity that we want. The kind of integrity that David has is the kind of integrity that confesses sin. We saw this earlier in the psalm. Verse 4, I have sinned against you. You know, if, if, you, if you reflect on it, it's really disappointing the way, that, the way that we all live. We all fail to live up to what we know is right. We all fail to do what we ought to do. We, we are miserable failures. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have no integrity. Last night, my sweet wife got sick in the middle of the night, and I did not walk in integrity. Uh, I, I am her husband. I should be leading and protecting and providing her even in the middle of the night when she's sick. And I laid there in bed like a miserable loser. It's a failure on my part. It's wretched. The only kind of integrity that we sinners can hope to have is the kind of integrity that arises from being willing to confess our sin and repent and do right. I don't ever want to leave her to suffer alone again. David says here, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Why does he say that? Because the Lord said that the king from David's line would be established before the Lord Forever. He would reign there forever. And David is saying, you're keeping your promise. And again, there's this interweaving of David's own experience with his expectation regarding the road that his descendant is going to walk. And then it concludes, Psalm 41 does, with this benediction that serves as a kind of punctuation mark at the end of, of this whole book of Psalms, the whole first part of the Psalter. And, and there are... There are about four parts of this. The first first is this word blessed. Uh, It's actually a different word than the one in Psalm 41.1. Psalm 41.1, you've got this term ashray. uh, And then Psalm 41.13, you've got this word baruch, which is where you get the word barak. It's it's a word that means blessed. They're overlapping in meaning. Blessed be the Lord, that's the second part, the God of Israel, 
from everlasting to everlasting, basically forever, and then amen and amen. You can go look at the end of Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 106, and then the end of the whole book, Psalms 146 through 50, and you'll find these four parts there. Blessed be the Lord, and it uses his name, forever, from everlasting to everlasting, and then amen and amen. And, and so that, that's like a punctuation mark here at the end of, of book one. So Psalm 41 looks to the coming king from David's line, the hero. This is Jesus that this psalm is looking forward to. And he's the one who's going to cause wisdom for the poor. He is the one against whom the enemies are gathering, have gathered, and will gather, just as they gathered against David. He's the one whom the Lord is going to raise up to establish shalom by doing justice against the wicked. And that way of reading Psalm 41 is validated by the text that was read earlier in the service by Tyler. Psalm 41.9 is quoted by Jesus in, in John 13, verse 18. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Similarly, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, quotes Psalm 41.13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. He quotes that right before he talks about how the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David in Luke 1, 68 and 69. Jesus is the one who's going to cause wisdom for the poor. Jesus bruised his heel as he crushed the serpent's head. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's going to recompense his enemies. He's the one who's going to prompt all God's people to say the words of Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. How are we going to follow in the footsteps of Christ between here and there? You know, I think there's, there's uh, something important for us in Romans 16, 20. Uh, Romans 16, 20, I've just been talking about Jesus crushing the serpent's head. Paul says to the Christians at Rome in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. So, so Paul is saying to a group of Christians, God is going to be establishing his triumph through you. In the city of Rome. What would the Lord have us do? I don't know the answer to, to that question. I don't know everything the Lord wants us to do to seek to go, go out and cause wisdom for the poor. But, but I, I want to I make two comments, maybe two pointers for us. And, and, um, and I'm just throwing these things out here hoping to prompt somebody's thinking. Um, I read an article that, that Colin and, and uh, Scott pointed me to that said in 1968, working men in their 30s to 40s, 86% of them were married. Today, 52%. Working men in their 30s to 40s, 52% of men are married as compared to 86% in 1968. Going down to Brazil last weekend, I watched this movie, Boyhood, Boyhood which is a tragic tale of a, a little boy that grows up without a father. And, and we could just go on and on about all the devastating ramifications on women and children when they don't have a father in the home. So I don't know how Kenwood can be about promoting marriage, helping people uh, have strong marriages, helping little kids uh, grow up to think 
I'm going to get married, and I'm going to stay married, and I'm going to be faithful. I mean, ultimately, this is going to grow out of the gospel, isn't it? Because I want to be like Jesus, who's faithful to his bride. But I would, I would ask all of you to pray and think, how can our church promote this in our society? How can we be a part of somehow renewing a vision for marriage today in Louisville? Related to that, maybe this will be part of, the, part of the answer to my own question. I don't know. Related to that, I recently heard about this ministry called schoolministries.org. And what this ministry does is it, it, if, if the local administrators are willing to tolerate this, it, it makes it so that, let's say, high school students, one of their classes, one of their electives is a Bible class that they leave the school campus. You know, there's a high school campus right around the corner here. And they come to a, a local church, and their elective is a Bible class. So, I don't know, maybe there's somebody here who's going to go to schoolministries.org and feel a passion for this and feel like, let's make this happen here. Let's, make it, let's, let's see if we can't bring it about that students from, from local schools might not be... I mean, we, goodness knows, we've got some Bible teachers here in the congregation, right? And, and um, now, it, it has to be funded. We would have to somehow come up with the funds for this. We would have to raise money to pull this off. We would have to, we would have to uh, guarantee that every day we could get those kids uh, from their school to this building to teach them the Bible for an hour and then get them back, and the testimonials that I've heard are that the students love this. The students love this because they get to leave campus, and they get treated well. They get treated well by nice people, and they actually get taught some answers to big questions that lots of people have. So I don't know if these two things are going to come together, but I am praying, and I hope you'll pray, that the Lord would make us a church that follows Jesus in causing wisdom for the poor. A church that the Lord uses to, to bring people into spiritual intimacy with God. And if you're here this morning and, and you wonder what that looks like, I would direct your eyes again to what David says there in verse 4. You, you need to recognize that God is your creator, that he's holy, and that you've sinned against him. And that your only hope to be right is to confess that sin. And the only way that you can be right once you confess your sin, the only thing that makes that possible is the fact that God put forth Christ as a sacrifice of propitiation. And if you put your faith and hope in that, you'll be reconciled to God. And then, and then we'll begin the process of you being transformed into his image. And you'll feel these new desires to want to help other people have their poverty of spiritual intimacy addressed and their poverty of being addressed and their poverty of community addressed. And all of that's going to overflow into their poverty of stewardship being addressed. Let's pray together. Father, my words can't cause any of this to happen. But your word spoke the world into being. And your word calls those who are in darkness into the light and causes light to shine in their hearts. And Lord, we are asking that you would do that now. We are asking that people who are not reconciled to you, people who know that they are not on intimate terms with you, we pray that even now they would hear you calling them 
And they would recognize the voice of the good shepherd. And they would know that Jesus is a Savior who will never let them down. And we pray, Lord, that they would feel like Peter. To whom shall we go? This this God, this Jesus has the words of eternal life. And Lord, we're praying that you would make us a blessing here in this place. We pray, Lord, that that your name would be glorified, that, that good works would shine before men, that people would glorify you in heaven. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.